So here's a fascinating story that I'm guessing many of you may not be all that familiar with, especially if you haven't read Jeremiah for a good long time. You're probably familiar with the outcome of the story if you have been reading along with us because this was uh, our reading for earlier in the week. I think it was Tuesday, if I, if I recall correctly. So uh, just by way of a little quiz here, uh, just for fun, how many of you know the outcome of the story? How many of you know what happened to Zedekiah? Okay, all right, good. Well, about half of you, raise your hands, so the rest of you are in for an interesting uh, storyline this morning, and uh, I trust that even if you know how the story turns out, there's some lessons to be learned from Zedekiah's example. So as we reflect on these words from Jeremiah 38 and continue our series of studies through the book of Jeremiah, let me begin with a strange question for you, and then a story to go along with that question. Here's the question, and it's borrowed uh, from a book that I've been reading recently that I found very compelling. Uh, It's a book called If by Pastor Mark Batterson, um, who's the pastor of National Community Church in Washington, D.C., and uh, at the beginning of chapter 5 of Mark's book called If, he poses a question that I want to pose to you this morning with props and thanks to Mark for this idea. Here's the question. Would you fast for 22 days if you knew that it would net $100 million for a cause that you care about? Raise your hand if you'd say yes. No food for 22 days in exchange for $100 million given to a cause that you care about. I hope for most all of us that the answer is a resounding yes, but the really interesting corollary question to follow up that one is this. What if you didn't know the result? What if you felt God prompting you to fast for 22 days and you weren't sure what would come of it? You just felt the Holy Spirit nudging you in that direction. How many of you would be willing to try a 22-day fast with no food because you thought God was prompting you to do that with no sense of what the outcome might be? See, This is a fascinating question because it's all about if, the little word if. What if I did that? What would happen? How would that play out? What might result if I were willing to do that, if I were willing to say yes to God? You see, the question, that question is a big what if. Much like the numerous other what ifs that we all encounter over the course of our lifetime. And while the circumstances are unique and different for each one of us, the, the question is basically the same. It goes something like this What if I choose to obey what I think God wants me to do or not? What will happen if I choose to obey or if I choose to disobey? If I don't do what God wants me to do, what will the consequences be? If I obey the guidance of God, will he back me up or will I regret it? 
Anybody ever faced those kind of decisions? I think we all do, routinely. Some, of course, are bigger than others. Some questions we face, some decisions we have to make are much bigger than others. But I think you could say that virtually every decision we make comes back to a question of what if? What if I do what God wants me to do? Or what if I don't? And that brings me to the story I want to share with you as an illustration and an introduction this morning. It's the story of a congressman named Tony Hall. And it's shared in the same chapter of Mark Batterson's book um, from which I found that question. So let me just share this story with you because it's a phenomenal illustration of the principle that I've just described in short. And I'm just going to read the story as Mark tells it because he tells it much better than I could. He experienced it firsthand through his relationship with Congressman Tony Hall. So Mark writes this, Shortly after moving to Washington, D.C., I heard rumors of a bipartisan multiracial prayer meeting hosted by Congressman Tony Hall. I was intrigued enough to check it out. I've since written a book or two on prayer, and we've hosted our fair share of prayer meetings at National Community Church. But that inaugural prayer meeting was a defining moment for me. I knew that prayer, not politics, would be the thing that changes our city, that is Washington, D.C., from the inside out. Afterward, I greeted Congressman Hall and went on my way. It had been nearly two decades since that prayer meeting when Tony and I caught up again over a cup of coffee at Ebenezer's Coffee Shop. After serving for 24 years in the United States House of Representatives, Tony Hall was appointed the United States Ambassador to the United Nations um, Agencies for Food and Agriculture in Rome. Following his ambassadorship, Tony moved back to Washington to lead the International Alliance to End Hunger. Now, you can't get within 10 feet of Tony Hall without feeling his pulsing passion to end world hunger. That's Tony's what if. That's what makes him get up in the morning and keeps him up at night. The genesis of Tony's passion was a trip to Ethiopia during a severe famine nearly 30 years ago. The congressional delegation visited a number of sites, including a small medical uh, outpost run by two nuns. While they were there, thousands of refugees, looking like walking skeletons, appeared on the horizon. They had walked hundreds of miles to get food, food that the nuns did not have. When they discovered there was no food, many of them lay down on the ground and waited to die. That, uh, their moaning will echo in Tony's ears forever. Some mothers handed Tony their children, hoping that he could help. He could not. Quote, I watched 24 children die in 15 minutes, Tony said. And I never got over that. Tony's heart broke, and it's still an open wound. But it's our woundedness that God uses to help and to heal others. If that experience in Ethiopia was the genesis of Tony's passion, 
The revelation happened the day that Congress cut all funding for the Select Committee on Hunger, the committee that Tony chaired. With one stroke of a pen, his cause became a lost cause. The New York Times had called the Select Committee on Hunger the conscience of the Congress. But as Tony so poignantly points out, the poor cannot afford lobbyists. When the committee was cut, Tony was tempted to quit Congress altogether. Then his wife Jan said, have you ever thought about fasting? Sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks in a voice that sounds just like your spouse. Good point. That one question changed the trajectory of Tony's life. It was the catalyst that caused him to ask, what if? Tony and Jan read Isaiah 58 together. Then they rolled the dice on that what if. The next day, Tony stood before a bank of dozens of microphones and announced his fast for hunger. I was afraid of looking like a fool, Tony told me. I figured it might even cost me my seat in Congress. But that's what walking after the Spirit looks like, feels like. It felt like one man against the world, but Tony knew that if God was for it, nothing could stop it. The next 22 days would prove to be more difficult, yet more amazing, the most amazing days of his life. His body weakened with nothing but water to sustain it, but his resolve strengthened like carbon steel forged at 2,246 degrees Fahrenheit. 10,000 high school students joined his fast. The major networks across the country and around the world documented what Tony was doing. Then, on the 22nd day, the breakthrough happened. The World Bank told Tony that they wanted to convene a world conference on hunger. And after the conference, more than $100 million was pledged to the cause that Tony cared so much about. Mohamed Yamu, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on, on microcredit and microfinance, later told Tony that the fund had multiplied many times over, totaling nearly half a billion dollars. Why? All because Tony came to a what-if moment and he chose to follow God in that moment. So what in the world does that story have to do with Jeremiah 38? Well, in short, let me put it to you this way. I believe that the life of Zedekiah, and particularly what we read of it in this chapter, teaches us the same principle, but from an opposite perspective. It teaches us about the power of if. But sadly, it also teaches us that if we don't grab hold of those what-if moments and act on them in faith, the results will lead us to a different kind of if. The regret that comes with thinking and saying, if only I had done what God wanted me to. So let's think about the example of Zedekiah, contrasted with the example of Tony Hall, and see if we can't come away with some transferable principles that apply to each and every one of us. And here's the first one that I want to draw your attention to. 
it comes to this. Every choice we face to act or to speak for God is represented by the word if. Think about that. It's a tiny little two-letter word, one of the smallest words in the English language. I mean, you can't get really much smaller. The only way you can get any smaller is to drop the F, and it becomes I. And yet, that tiny little word, if, holds incredible power. For those of you who might be grammatical enthusiasts, the word if is what's known as a conditional conjunction. Anybody know that? A conditional conjunction. There are other conjunctions in the English language, words like and or but. Conjunctions are words that are used to connect different clauses or ideas in a sentence. But if is unique among the other conjunctions because it adds a condition that connects the two things together, the two clauses or the two ideas. A condition. It's a conditional conjunction. I remember first learning about the power of if back when I was in college, and I took my first class in computer programming. And if you've ever had a chance in uh, uh, college to take such a class or even high school, um, you'll probably recall one of the first lessons of any computer programming class has to do with if-then statements, right? There are all sorts of binary codes that have to be written uh, to create any kind of a computer program, and they're all based on if-then statements. So if, in that sense, is uniquely powerful. Come to find out all computer programming is fundamentally based on, on these kind of statements. And so it's all conditional. If, if this is true, then this happens, or if this is true, then this happens. The way that code is written is based on certain conditions being met. And if this is true, then such and such will happen, but if it's not true, then such and such will, so and so will happen instead. So now, let me take you back to Jeremiah 38, and I want you to notice how the power of this little word if comes right to our attention in verse 15 of Jeremiah 38. And here's what I love about this concept, right? This little tiny word if seems, at, at first glance, so insignificant that you might read right over it and not even notice it in the text. But when you start to look for it, and when you start to think about the significance of that word, it's amazing. Here's what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 38, 15. Jeremiah says to Zedekiah, Zedekiah is inquiring for wisdom. What does the Lord want me to do? And Jeremiah says, if I give you an answer, will you not kill me? Even if I did give you counsel, you would not listen to me. So apparently, Jeremiah does not have a lot of confidence in Zedekiah's response to the wisdom that he has to offer, the counsel from God that he actually seems to be seeking. Here we have the prophet Jeremiah facing an if. What will happen if he answers Zedekiah's question? Will he, in fact, be put to death or will he live? Will Zedekiah follow Jeremiah's advice or not? 
And so right in this first statement, Jeremiah 38, 15, from Jeremiah's lips, we find two ifs. Two ifs. Did you know that in all of Scripture, there are 1,784 ifs? Probably not. That's not the kind of trivia that most of us are uh, tuned into, although maybe it'll come in handy on Jeopardy someday. But most of those ifs function as conditions on the front end of God's promises. Think about that. If you're interested in the promises of God being fulfilled over your life, then pay close attention to the ifs that come before them. If we meet the conditions that God lays out, then God delivers on his promise. As Mark Batterson puts it so well, if is what turns God's eternal promises into our present realities. So for Jeremiah, in this case, the what if was about whether to speak God's word to Zedekiah and trust God to back him up. Jeremiah knew that there was a risk in speaking the truth. And he knew full well from experience that there were certain adverse consequences that might come his way if he spoke the truth on God's behalf. In fact, if you want to go back and review the storyline leading up to this particular chapter, in chapter 37, Jeremiah is arrested and thrown in prison, we're told, for a very long time. Why? Because he was speaking the word of God faithfully, and people didn't like what he had to say. Then, in chapter 38, he's taken out of prison, captured again, and thrown into a dry well where he's left to die with no food or water. So you can understand, right, with that kind of background, with that kind of history, you can understand that Jeremiah might have been like a little reluctant to speak, to Zedekiah, but he did it. He stepped out in faith. He spoke the word of God. He spoke the truth that God had given him. And of course, I think it perhaps it might have helped a little that in this case anyway, Zedekiah promised that no harm would come to him. What would you do? What would you do if God gave you a prophetic word for President Trump and you knew that he wouldn't like it. Would you speak it anyway? Would you trust God in that moment enough to deliver his message? Crazy little question to ponder. But I think it helps put in perspective what Jeremiah was facing. What I love about Jeremiah in this instance is his courageous faith. He knew the risks that he faced. And yet he faced down his fears and he spoke what the Lord gave him. He hesitated momentarily to consider the what-if consequences, but then he went for it. He did it. He acted in obedience to the Lord, not out of fear. He stepped out in faith, trusting God to back him up. And of course, it didn't hurt that Zedekiah had promised not to kill him. 
So first and foremost, then, what Jeremiah's predicament illustrates for us is the choice that comes with every what-if scenario that we face. Every what-if moment that confronts us. If brings us to a moment of decision. Will I or won't I do what God wants me to do in this moment? What if I speak or act on, uh, on God's behalf? What will happen if I do or if I don't? That's the power of this little word, if. And life is full of these what-if moments when we're confronted by the consequences of obedience or disobedience. So that then brings us to another insight. As the story goes on here, we come to another set of ifs. The first set is for Jeremiah. The second set is for Zedekiah. The key here, as we look at the example of Zedekiah's moment of decision, the key is to recognize this principle at work. In every what-if moment, we have to find the faith to trust in the guidance of God. In every what-if moment, we have to find the faith to trust in the guidance of God. Some people use what-if questions to second-guess the past. This is what's known as counterfactual thinking, and it's, uh, of course, a historian's favorite question. What if this had happened differently, right? Looking back on history. For example, what if, the four, what if one of the four musket balls that passed through George Washington's coat during the Battle of Monongahela in 1755 had actually struck his body? What if? Or what if the D-Day invasion on June 6th of 1944 had actually failed to stop the Nazi regime? Other people prefer to use what-if questions to think strategically about the future. And this is an interesting practice as well. In fact, uh, just a little web search um, brought me to one site by a group called the Board of Innovation. And uh, they had a site under the heading of 30 what-if questions to rethink your future. But I want you to think about this what-if question as it applies to the present. Not the past or the future, but the present. The moment you find yourself in. The moment of decision. Those are interesting exercises in creative thinking. But for our purposes, I'm concerned with the basic choices that we face virtually every day of our lives. What if I do this or what if I do that? Life is full of moments like this when we face the question and the consequences of what if. And this is not some exercise in hypothetical thinking. This is one of the fundamental challenges of life. It's about decision-making, choosing well, choosing wisely, acting in obedience to God. In fact, I, I like to think this is where the rubber of faith meets the road of life. Because for all those of us who actually believe that God exists and that God is for us, not against us, we should also believe that he's eager to guide us whenever we face a difficult decision. We have to trust 
that he's indeed for us so much that he wants to help us first to know what his will is and then to actually do it. We have to trust that that whether it's in the written word of God or the spoken word of God um, uttered by the still small voice of the Holy Spirit within us, God wants to show us the choice that meets with his approval. In fact, this is this concept of what if is so significant that um, there's, there's a simple and biblical if statement that I hope will, will help to orient your thinking uh, as we consider the story of Zedekiah. It's, it's in Romans 8.31. Paul says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you want God to be for you? Do you believe that God is for you? And are you for him and all that he stands for? There's another important if statement in Scripture that comes just a few chapters after that one in Romans 10, verse 9. In fact, I would say, from my own personal experience, that this is the most important what-if question that you will ever face in your entire life. Listen to this, Romans 10, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. See, that's a pretty big if, isn't it? Now, once we do that, then the journey of obedience begins. The decision-making begins. Once we've said yes to Jesus for the first time, we're faced with a lifetime full of choices to keep saying yes, right? In fact, I believe most of the, the important decisions we face over our lifetime hinge on this question of what if. If I choose to trust God in this circumstance, what does he want me to do? And what will happen if I do it? Sometimes those choices are fairly simple and straightforward. Sometimes they're binary. It's just choose door number one or door number two. And sometimes it seems a little more complicated. There are multiple choices before us. But in either case, the key to choosing well And making wise decisions in life is seeking and submitting to the guidance of God. I'll give you an illustration from my own experience. This was many years ago when I faced a decision after college about what I was going to do with uh, the next season in my life. And I was feeling led to pursue um, training for pastoral ministry and uh, decided that I should go off to seminary for further training, and I had to decide what seminary to go to. Should I go here or should I go there? Uh, I mean, first I had to decide if I was going to do it at all, and then I had to decide where I was going to go. And I remember contemplating uh, two options in particular. Uh, one was to stay in Holland, Michigan, where I lived at the time, and go to Western Seminary there in Holland, and the other one was to kind of move and, and start over and and go to Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. 
Well, uh, I was confused. I didn't know what God's will was in that moment. And I actually went uh, to, to meet with my pastor at the time to seek some, some wisdom and some counsel. And I'll never forget what he said to me in that moment. He listened to me share about the difficulty I was having, the question, well, which one of these is God's will for me, and how should I know what the right choice is? And, and here's what he said. He said, you know, Kevin, sometimes God opens multiple doors at the same time, and he says, you choose. I was like, whoa, really? <laughs> what a concept. You see, what, what that experience taught me was that sometimes God's will is not a binary choice, do this or don't do it. Sometimes it's more like a, a permissive circle of choices. Within the circle, there are options that you can select from that are all within God's will. But outside the circle, you cross the line and the choices outside the circle are not God's will for you. In Zedekiah's case, it wasn't that complicated. In Zedekiah's case, there were two choices. He sought counsel, and Jeremiah spoke it and gave him two choices and only two. Pick door number one or door number two. Which is it going to be? Obey God and find blessing or disobey God and suffer the consequences? Zedekiah asked Jeremiah to tell him the truth, that is, God's truth, about what would happen and what he should do in this predicament. The city of Jerusalem is under siege by the Babylonians. They're, they're beating on the walls and on the gates, right? They're trying to overtake the city. Zedekiah is the king of Judah, inquiring of the Lord, what should I do? My enemies are about to overtake the city. So Jeremiah speaks, and here's what Jeremiah said. Verses 17 and 18. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared, and this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from them. So there's the choice. There's the choice confronting Zedekiah. Door number one, door number two, what are you going to do? And notice again the significance of the if statements in those verses. There are two, to be precise. One for each possible response of Zedekiah in this particular circumstance. His choices were either to surrender to the king of Babylon or to flee for his life. Which one should he choose? Now, granted, it may have seemed at the time like neither was a really good choice, but those were the choices God put before him. Each choice, we should also recognize, came with its own consequences. If Zedekiah should choose to surrender, then his life and the lives of his family members would be spared. And, oh, by the way, the city of Jerusalem will not be burned down to the ground. 
On the other hand, if Zedekiah should choose to flee for his life, he might think that he can escape, but he won't. Jeremiah, on God's behalf, says, don't even bother trying. You will not escape from the Babylonians if you try. And Zedekiah was told in no uncertain terms that he would not escape, could not escape, and if he tried, neither would the city of Jerusalem escape from the wrath of the Babylonians. So in this sense, I think the choice that Zedekiah faced is telling in a symbolic sort of way, right? It was a choice between surrender or self-preservation. Think about it. And the irony is to choose surrender to the word of God and the, and the guidance of God is what actually brings self-preservation. But the temptation is to choose to try to protect yourself in your own way. You see, what's at play here is the power of fear. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. For now, what I want you to hear and think about is that this choice Zedekiah faced was between surrender to God, represented by surrender to the Babylonians in this case, or self-protection. And there are other ways you could think of it that I think are, are significant as well. It was a choice between humbling himself or acting in pride. It was a choice between doing what God said should be done or doing what he thought he should do. In that moment, Zedekiah was only one decision away from a completely different life. Think about that. What an incredible moment of decision for him to face. And then, you know, to make it even more dramatic here, what I find particularly compelling about this is how that choice affected others. It didn't just affect him, and neither do our choices either. Our choices always affect other people around us. And in this case, Zedekiah's choice would determine whether the city of Jerusalem would survive or be burned to the ground. Everybody that he was in leadership over was affected by his decision as a leader. All Zedekiah had to do to save his own life and the city of Jerusalem was listen to God and do what he said. Surrender. There it is in a word. Surrender. Don't surrender to your own inclinations. Seek wisdom from heaven and then surrender to it, to him. It's really a two-step process here that Zedekiah was engaged in. First, he had to seek wisdom, which he did. He got the first step right. But then he had to act on the wisdom that he was given. That's where he failed. That's where he fell short. The first step, seeking wisdom, comes to asking 
for God's guidance in the moment of decision that you're facing. And here, you know, I, I personally, I love to turn my, my own attention to the promise found in James 1, verse 5. I can't tell you how many times I've gone back to this promise again and again in a moment of decision where I didn't know what to do. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But then James goes on, right? It's not good enough to just seek wisdom and receive it. When you receive it, you have to trust God enough to act on the wisdom you've been given. Zedekiah, to his credit, was willing to seek a word from the Lord. He sought out Jeremiah for a prophetic word of guidance. He got the first step right, but then he fell short with the second. Don't just be a hearer of the word, James says. Be a doer of the word. When God speaks to you and grants you the guidance that you're seeking, do what he says. Act on it in faith, and you'll see just how his promises are fulfilled and his provision is granted. So what happened? What happened to Zedekiah? Well, the answer to that question brings us to one last insight that I want to close with this morning from this amazing little story. And again, if you've read on into Jeremiah 39, you already know how the story plays out. I've hinted at it already. This story is not like the story of Congressman Tony Hall. In fear, Zedekiah chose to flee for his life. In fact, here's how the account is told in Jeremiah 39. Actually, let's back up. Just look at the, uh, look at the expression of fear first. And think about this with me. Here's the last takeaway I want to put before you, and then we'll, we'll look at the story and how it plays out. If you want to avoid living with, if only, regrets, then you have to overcome the fear that you face in your own what-if moment. Okay? What happens is in that moment of decision when we're not sure what to do and we have the choices before us and we're asking ourselves, what if? If we seek guidance from God, if we seek wisdom from God and we receive it but fail to act on it, we end up living with regret. Regret. Regret is represented by a different kind of an if statement that starts like this. If only I had done that differently. If only I had done what I thought God wanted me to do. If only I hadn't messed up that decision. If only I had it to do over again. So look at this and how it plays out in the life of Zedekiah. Jeremiah 38, 19 and 20. King Zedekiah says to Jeremiah, after Jeremiah gives him the two choices, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the Jews who've gone over to the Babylonians, for the Babylonians may hand me over to them and they will mistreat me. They will not hand you over, 
Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you, then it will go well with you and your life will be spared. There's an amazing statement. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you, then it will go well with you and your life will be spared. But fear won the day. Fear. Instead of listening to Jeremiah's wise counsel and this word of God, guidance from, from the Lord, Zedekiah listened to the fear. Instead of walking in obedience, he chose not to listen to God's guidance, but to listen to the fear in his own heart and mind. So here's what happened. Jeremiah 39, 4-8, the next chapter. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, that's Zedekiah and his army trying to defend the city of Jerusalem, when they saw the Babylonians breaking through the walls, breaking through the gates of Jerusalem, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and they headed toward the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. And there at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. And last but not least, verse 8, the Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Don't you wish that story had turned out differently? I mean, when you're confronted with such a plain choice, how could you disobey But that's what he did. Zedekiah gave in to his fears. There's an old saying that goes like this, right? You know this one. Those who don't remember the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. So there's a silver lining in the cloud of this story. It's kind of a you know, depressing story, really, in one sense. But there's a lesson to be learned from Zedekiah. And it's a powerful lesson. The lesson is, don't make the same mistake, right? Don't be like Zedekiah. As we consider the tragic ending of this story, you know, we, we can learn to, to press in and inquire of the Lord as Zedekiah did. But then we also have to learn to say yes to God's guidance. Even when our survival instinct kicks in and says, flee! We have to learn to surrender in that moment to the Lord, to his guidance, to his wisdom, instead of our own. And so there's a, a warning here, implicit in Zedekiah's story. It's the warning from God that what-if moments can turn into if-only moments. 
regrets that plague us for the rest of our lives. Do you think Zedekiah struggled with regret over this decision? I bet he did. I bet he thought about it every day for the rest of his life. And I don't know how long he lived, but I mean, if I were him, I think I'd wish that the Babylonians had killed me with the rest of my family. They didn't. They put his eyes out and let him live to think about the poor decision he made. If only, if only I had chosen differently, I can hear him saying, I can hear him thinking. If only I'd obeyed God's word. If only I'd trusted him instead of myself. Regret can be about things that you did and wish you hadn't done or about things you didn't do and wish that you had done. It works either way. But in either case, regret is the feeling we have over the mistakes we've made, the failures. And it's a powerful feeling that can hold us captive if we let it. Now, thankfully, if we're in Christ, there's grace for those mistakes, and that's the subject of another message for another day because we don't have time to dive into that here and now. But for now, hear this. Hear this. The best way to escape the grasp of regret is not to choose against God in the first place. The more we choose obedience to God, the less we battle regret. It's that simple. So don't believe the deceptive lie that God's word can't be trusted. Don't trust your own thoughts and ideas. And specifically, don't give in to the fears that will mislead you. Fear is a great weapon in the hands of our spiritual enemy. And he wields it often to keep us from doing what God guides us to do. Did you know that the only fear Scripture commends as complementary to faith is the fear of the Lord himself? Every other fear will betray you and lead you in the wrong direction. So to sum up, the lesson of the day amounts to this. Don't be like Zedekiah. Don't make the same mistake. Learn from his example. Don't let fear rise up and sabotage your faith. Instead, learn to practice saying yes to God as consistently as you can. Seek his guidance and wisdom. Then act in obedience to what he gives you. If you do, if you do, as you do, the presence and the power and the provision of God will be with you. Let's pray.